Coming up on Stu Does America, author Michael Schellenberger joins us to share his absolutely insane theory about climate change and how it's not going to eliminate the human race. And Jason Buttrell, head writer and researcher of the Glenn Beck program, shares his insights on former National Security Advisor John Bolton. Join us in our battle against the YouTube algorithm robots by subscribing to our channel there, commenting on the videos, and hitting the thumbs up like button right now. This instant, do it right now, please. What are you waiting for? If you've listened to me talk for more than two minutes, you know that I absolutely cannot abide climate change alarmists. Well, tonight, a very special guest will help me deliver a very huge I told you so, kind of. Uh, don't miss it. Starts now. Stu does America. Have you ever gone to a giant amusement park like Disney? And you park your car, you take the long walk through the parking lot. Then you arrive at a bus that shuttles you to a tram that brings you to the ticket line. And then you buy your ticket, wait through the line to get in, and then by then you have to go to the bathroom. There's another line, another long walk to another long line. You finally ride a roller coaster and then it's lunchtime. That's pretty much how it goes. That's how it feels uh, right now, you know, just living life. We're constantly shuttling from crisis to crisis, and we never seem to be able to find the fun part of life. One crisis that is omnipresent is the climate catastrophe. Always right there, but, you know, simultaneously right around the corner. We've been told for decades that this is the biggest threat we face as a nation and a people. Not a possible global pandemic. No preparations to be done there. That was way down the list. The climate eclipses everything. At least that's how we're supposed to think. But does that make any sense? I first became aware of Michael Schellenberger about seven years ago when he appeared in a documentary called Pandora's Promise. He was a climate activist that was a rare breed, someone who took the climate seriously and was brave enough to say the thing you're not allowed to say. That solving our climate challenges is only possible if we take nuclear power seriously. He does go through nuclear power uh, in the book um, with access to some of the world's top climate scientists. Uh, uh, The book is out today, by the way. He quotes MIT's Carrie Emanuel, for example. They can't have it both ways, said MIT climate scientist Carrie Emanuel. If they say this climate change is apocalyptic or it's an unacceptable risk, then they have to turn around and rule out one of the most obvious ways of avoiding it, nuclear power. They're not only inconsistent, they're insincere. This new book isn't just about nuclear power, though. It shows that the apocalyptic alarmism of activists and media is not only hyperbolic and ineffective, it's also just plain wrong. The book is called Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All, and I can't recommend it highly enough. It's the type of thing you're going to refer back to over and over again. It's an important book from a brave guy who is going to get trashed constantly for it. We need to support people willing to stick their neck out like this. Welcome to the program, Michael Schellenberger. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Um, you know, I've followed your work for a, a long time now, and I, I've always I've considered you one of the more important people in this debate because you're able to actually uh, approach it from a side of understanding. Um, I think uh, that that many 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 don't have. Um, you. You tweeted this today, though. I I found it interesting. You say, on behalf of environmentalists, I apologize for the climate scare. The climate change is real, but it's not the end of the world. It's not even our most important environmental problem. I am delivering my apology in the form of a book. I hope you accept it. What are you apologizing for, Michael? Well, I played a role in scaring people. Um, uh, I don't think I was as bad as some people, but I certainly 
framed climate change as an existential crisis. I suggested that it was, um, you know, a threat to human civilization and humankind. Um, it's really not. Um, at least nothing scientific could be said like that. And I became very concerned last year, in part because I have a 14-year-old daughter, and she's fine because I explained the science to her, but her friends are very scared. A lot of adolescents around the world felt like they wouldn't grow up to be able to have kids. They, uh, you know, girls were crying in London. Um, one out of five British children have nightmares. And this is wrong. And it's not, climate change is not the end of the world. Um, in fact, the news on climate change has been getting better because it appears as though uh, we're reducing emissions much faster. I mean, most people don't know that most rich countries have been reducing their emissions for several decades. The United States have been re reducing its emissions for almost 15 years. So there's just a lot, you know, we've been reducing the number of deaths from natural disasters for 100 years by 90%. So there's just a lot of good news that people should know. There's a lot of challenges as well, but I wouldn't consider really any of the biggest challenges to be climate change, uh, certainly not now, um, but probably not even in the past. Well, the book is just great. It's a great read. It's one of those I know I'm going to be going back to over and over and over again. To I remember this stat on this page. Thank you. Um, it, it does a great job explaining uh, everything. Um, I, I want to make sure that the people understand who you are, because it, it, first of all, the book is not a polemic by any means. It's not it, you're not some conservative activist who is working for Exxon Mobil. You tell people a little bit about your history, not just your activism recently, but also going back to when you were a teenager. Well, sure. The the first I started, I was an environmental activist from the age of 16. I threw a fundraiser for Rainforest Action Network that year. Uh, so that was 33 years ago. Um, I've worked on a lot of different causes. I've helped save uh, helped save California's last ancient redwoods, um, helped blow the whistle on factory conditions in Asia operated by Nike. I've worked on, I advocated a big renewables investment that President Obama made. I helped to make that happen, $90 billion. I've been a, uh, I've worked for everybody from Earth First to Sierra Club um, to NRDC. So I really care about this. This is my life's work. I have my mission has always been focused on both lifting people out of poverty and protecting the natural environment. And it's on that issue that I part company with some of my more alarmist colleagues who have used climate alarmism to deprive poor country the energy they need to develop. Used it here to moralize on things that really don't matter very much environmentally while opposing the things that actually are important for protecting the natural environment. So I wanted to, this is a long time coming. This is uh, not a, this is not a book that I'm going to, I'm not going to, I don't write books every year. This is only my second book in 15 years. So there's a lot in here, a lot of stories, a lot of stories about what life is like for the billions of people who don't have access to modern energy. So I want to bring that sensitivity in because I just think we get very lost in our first world problems. Yeah. And we don't we don't we forget the fact that we're actually some of the most fortunate people on Earth. Yeah. Yeah. And you make a great case that both of these things actually can be done at the same time and people can benefit as well as the environment. I want to start right where you start, which is you talk about a, a group um, uh, ex ex extinction rebellion. And they, they, they're kind of a theme throughout the book. You bring them up often. Uh, they are, I don't know, you'd see the, like the crazy climate activists who bringing coffins into the streets and in the most um, flamboyant way possible. And you talk about them blocking traffic in, uh, I think it was London. And it was an interesting perspective you had on it as, as the media members questioned this group over and over again, they would say they would agree with their claims, but at the same time criticize things like blocking traffic when you put right. those two together, it really doesn't make much sense, does it? 
Right. I mean, if you think that billions of people are going to die, or even if you think that just millions of people are going to die, then then blocking traffic seems like the least you could do. <laughs> like, why why would you stop there? I mean, it's quite. I mean, we laugh, but it's it's got some disturbing overtones. Um, you know, I think there's sort of a sense by a lot of journalists. I mean, I have to say, I was surprised. I mean, I this I I started criticizing the alarmism last year. The most common question I got from journalists, I won't name any names, but some prominent ones, was, hey, isn't some exaggeration necessary mm. to get people's attention? Here's the problem with that. First of all, they've been exaggerating this for 30 years, so you can't have it both ways. You can't say that nothing's been done for 30 years, um, <laughs> and we haven't been alarmists. We've been alarmists for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um but there's another problem with it is that when you start escalating these claims so that you go, you know, millions, billions, it starts to lead you to justifying some, I think, some pretty reprehensible behaviors, particularly redirecting World Bank money away from things that lift people out of poverty to things like democracy workshops, charitable activities that are not critical to economic growth. There's a lot of environmentalists that are just against economic growth. I think they forgot that we all became very wealthy, secure, prosperous, free people. You know, a lot of environmentalists are, are, are feminists, women's rights advocates, gay rights advocates. There are no women's rights in a society that's really poor. Mm. You know, there are they're not rights for minorities, racial or sexual minorities in poor societies. So. The characters in my book are mostly women. They're often uh, women of color, uh, poor people. So this is not a this is not a right wing book. This is not a book that lets liberals off the hook. It says if you really believe in in you know what you might call humanistic values, values that put people first, then you can't justify many of the behaviors that climate alarmists have been perpetrating for the last three decades. Yeah, I mean, I just the, the journey of Bernadette and Suparti in the book are it's a fascinating uh, way to illustrate how this affects real people. Um, I want to I want to hit quickly. Uh, you blew my mind a couple of times right near the beginning of the book where this sort of thing played out. A quote, a, a claim from environmentalists that I've heard a million times. I've seen quoted and parroted by media sources a million times. You yeah. uh, take that claim and you go to the scientist who is responsible for the claim, and multiple times they tell you, actually, that was a misquote. I didn't even say that. I mean, that is an absolutely fascinating uh, thing that happens at least two or three times right near the beginning of the book. I mean, that was an incredible thing to go through. Did you expect to hear we're talking about misquotes? Yeah, I mean, there's some pretty bad behavior here. I mean, I so so. You know, I wrote this book in the simplest way possible because I wanted my my 14-year-old daughter to read it. Um, I wanted kids to be able to read it because, you know, look, if they have to choose between, you know, an old guy like me and Greta Thunberg, they choose Greta Thunberg. <laughs> so I felt like, well, I got I got to put the data together and I'm going to go interview because Greta Thunberg says, listen to the scientists. Mm. Well, she's listening to basically three or four apocalyptic, radical left scientists I interviewed them, and I'll tell you the thing that was really um, disappointing about those conversations is how quickly each of them attempted to blame journalists Mm. for having misquoted them. It was almost like an intuitive response. You know, and one of them, one of the claims was, I don't see how the planet could sustain a half billion people. Okay, there's seven and a half billion people right now. The, The quote was, I don't see how the world could sustain a half billion people, 
Well, the the scientist who I interviewed said, oh, I was misquoted. What I said was, I don't see how the Earth could sustain half as many people. Well, it's still claiming that billions <laughs> of people are going to die. Why are you even... It, it just got to the point of being so pseudoscientific. And so, yeah, I did actually get to the bottom of the really um, hysterical claims. But there's other ones. I mean, th- this idea that, that the, the Brazilian Amazon rainforest is the lungs of the world it was never true. <laughs> it has been debunked since the 60s, it turns out. Um, it was debunked, actually, when I was a kid in the 80s. Um, and in fact, in the early readers of this book, I debunked it too quickly. The readers said they just couldn't get over it. So I added this very long paragraph. I thought it was boring about how the oxygen respiration cycle works. Um, and it just shows, I think, I mean, by the way, it's 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 New York Times, CNN, it's mainstream media that said the Amazon is the lungs of the world. It, first of all, it doesn't make any sense because the lungs, of course, <laughs> absorb oxygen and emit carbon. Right. The Amazon absorbs carbon. So, but that, that kind of stuff is shockingly common. I mean, I'm not really, I don't know other issues like healthcare or, or all the other issues that we debate. But in this case, it's really almost the case that everything people think about the environment is wrong. We've been misinformed. Yeah, and it was it was really interesting, um, and I think you have a, a real advantage over any other book I've read, uh, you know, that has any 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 uh, relation to the topic that you're talking about here. And that these scientists took you seriously. I think a lot of times, you know, when you come out with something critical towards science, they they reflexively uh, bring it back to partisanship or you're anti-science or whatever it is. It, all these you could tell that you, they respected you. They took you seriously and they tried to answer your claims. At least that was the impression I got from the book. Um, and over and over again, you brought them you put them in places that I think made them uncomfortable. But instead of the reflexive answer of your anti-science, they can't really pull that off with you. Did you f- feel that like that was an, a, 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 an advantage? as far as trying to get to the truth on this stuff? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, you know, I mean, the, the, the only reason I never did this earlier is that I always thought that somebody in the scientific community would do this work, and they, they kept not doing it, you know. And I got an invitation from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change last year to be an invited um, expert reviewer of their reports. I'm, I'm very sure that that came from people inside IPCC who think, who understand that they have a problem of credibility mm. because of all the alarmist messages they put out over the years. So, you know, I mean, I think, you know, look, people are willing to talk to you if you're, you know, I'm a, I write a column for Forbes and, you know, I usually call these guys and, you know, and I mean, I think that the thing I'll say about the book is that um, there's, there's, I always try to um, bring out the best in everybody I interviewed. And so, you know, one of the people I actually really liked was this woman who's famous for having pulled the plastic straw out of the sea turtle yeah. nose. Mm-hmm. It's this viral video. You know, she and I got on the phone. We were on the phone together for an hour and a half. And um, I really respect her and what she's doing. And I respect her marine biology work. At the end of it, though, we had an argument about she she thinks that private companies like Coca-Cola should be responsible for recycling activities in poor countries. I think that Mostly, we're going to deal with waste problems in the way that we've always done with it, which is that there's a centralized waste repository system. But I wanted to bring that into the book, which is to sort of say, hey, you know, there's actually a lot of good people working on this. Some people have some ideas that aren't quite right, but I, it's certainly not a book where um, I was trying to kind of just find 
you know, the bad part of people. I always was looking for both the good and the bad. Mm. Let's take a quick break. I want to come back on the other side with more. Um, Let me leave you with quote two, if I could, uh, if you guys could bring that one up, since we're talking about plastics. Uh, The plastics parable teaches us that when we we, that we save nature by not using it and we avoid using it by switching to artificial substitutes. It's a totally different way to think about this stuff, but it's a very important way. The book is called Apocalypse Never. Back with more of the author, Michael Schellenberger, in just a second. We're back with Michael Schellenberger, author of Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. Let me give you another quote here. This is uh, number eight, guys. Uh, Today's rich nations uh, should do everything they can to to help poor nations industrialize. Instead, many of them are doing something closer to the opposite, seeking to make poverty sustainable rather than to make poverty history. This is such a powerful argument you make throughout the book that this is not about, you know, you know, big oil companies. It's not about um, making the, you know, the environment better for the environment's sake. We want to make the earth better for people's sake uh, and specifically those who have a real chance of developing and coming along that are in really dangerous situations right now, not a century into the future. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, yeah, I mean, this is uh, was a huge motivation for writing this book. I guess if there was two big motivations, one, it was to provide uh, teenagers, uh, young people with the facts because they've been so badly misled. And then the other one was to stick up for these poor countries that are basically being denied cheap forms of energy, which are essential to develop by rich nations, which control the purse strings of the World Bank and other international development banks. I mean, it's outrageous, you know, that Mozambique, was allowed to export their natural gas to Europe. But what, we're not going to support them in building natural gas power plants that can provide electricity for Mm. their their people? Uh, This is just outrageous. And this is actually the mainstream environmental movement is supporting these policies. I'm talking about the Sierra Club, for example, Greenpeace, um, but also the European Union. So there's no justification for this. You know, I, I explain in the book how economic development works. It's so simple. All it is is people going from being small farmers, small subsistence farmers to living in the city, many of them working in factories, eventually working office jobs. And, you know, we're, I, I make this point that, you know, we, we all used to be small farmers. Now just 2% of us work in farming. Uh, how do we do that? We do it the same way almost everywhere. I mean, unless you have a bunch of oil and you're Saudi Arabia or something, most countries develop by having factories. And we call that industrialization. We also produce more food on less land. Well, now you have the entire United Nations Development Program, United Nations Environment Program, encouraging countries to stick with with small farming, like trying to basically, here, have a solar panel and you can stay in your village. Um, it's very upsetting. It's the it's the soul of this book. Um, it's why the, the, the central character is Bernadette, who, as you mentioned, is a, a woman in the Congo and in, in, in Africa. And 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 she needs a big hi- they need a big hydroelectric dam. Well, guess who's stopping them? My neighbors in Berkeley. And where's <laughs> all of our electricity coming from? Hydroelectric dams. Mm. So you can see I get very upset about it. It's um, it's uh, it's disturbing. And especially since we did have this commitment just like 10 years ago, Bono and all those famous rock stars we're promoting this campaign called Make Poverty History. Whatever happened to that? They got taken over by the climate alarmists, who apparently they're, the thing they're most successful at, since they're not able to stop economic growth in wealthy countries, they're able to deprive poor countries the energy they need to develop. I just think it's unconscionable, and I had to speak out against it. Yeah, and it's really important that you do that. And I think part of that is is 
getting the, the truth out about a lot of these claims. Let me just give the audience a few of them that we go through, because unfortunately, we don't have a time to break them all down, but they're all broken down in the book with tons of sourcing, everything that you need. Uh, you mentioned Earth's lung. This, that, that's not an actual thing. Uh, the, the paper straws, plastic straws thing is vital to my future because that's the sort of thing I will lose my mind. If I have to have another paper straw, I will completely lose my mind. That's separate from your book, but it's true. Uh, sweatshops, are they evil or do they save the Earth? You make the case that they actually are helping people um, did, who saved the rails? Not Greenpeace, but capitalism twice, as you go through in the book. Uh, if you know this, this debate, you know uh, Natalie Orseques, who is you, you talk about her work in there and, 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 and some misleading things is there as well. Polar bears, we've heard so much about them. Um, and you actually go through and you have some really fascinating parts. You know, I kind of came to under, uh, to learning about you and your work when you did uh, you worked on the documentary um, several years ago uh, called uh, Pandora's Promise. And I, 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 you, you actually helped me set a rule, which is I don't take environmentalists seriously unless they're actually seriously considering nuclear energy, because it is really important. If you really care, this is a real solution. Um, you go back to the history of the nuclear power uh, stuff and find a great quote from Ralph Nader, which I had never heard before. And it. It, it crystallized how these debates change over time so significantly. Uh, this is quote seven, guys. Um, we do not need nuclear power, said Nader. We have a far greater, greater amount of fossil fuels in this country than we're owning up to. The tar sands, oil out of shale, methane in coal beds. The Sierra Club's energy consultant, Amory Lovins, wrote, coal can fill the real gaps in our fuel economy with only a temporary and modest expansion of mining. This is coming from environmentalists. It seems like it's another world. But these things change so quickly. And I think a lot of times it's based on uh, our opinion of ourselves that we're, our, our arguments are perfect every single time. And we're not willing to look at new technologies and exciting things when they do develop. Is that how you see it? Yeah, I mean, uh, this book really has, you know, it's divided really into three parts. The first part is a debunking of environmental alarmism. That's like the first uh, uh, four chapters. And then the next um, five chapters are about how humans save nature. And that's where we talk about why cities are important, uh, why industrialization is important, why substituting artificial uh, products for natural products is important to saving nature. And then the last three chapters look at why is it that we came to see these manageable environmental problems as the end of the world? And that is really about money, power, and religion. And ultimately, I think environmentalism is a religion for people that think that they, they're secular. Uh, we do know that uh, hardcore environmentalists do tend to be more secular. And I draw on a bunch of the psychological research, which shows that people really need to believe in something like people need to have a faith in something. And for a lot of people, you know, having kids and grandkids is enough to feel like you're have some kind of that you live on after you die. But for people, um, you know, that maybe don't have that or for whom that's not enough or whom don't believe that there's an afterlife, they mm. start to construct a kind of morality and a kind of cosmology that leads them to be very dogmatic. And so that's why when environmentalists are so dogmatic and so wrong at the same time, I think there's something going on that suggests they're motivated by, by more of a religious impulse than by a rational one. Yeah, and you make a good argument too about how the money flows, which is really an interesting part of this equation as well. Let me ask you this, this last one here before we leave. Uh, some of the book is just really raw. 
I mean, you could tell that there's there's a big chunk of you in here and and it's emotional at times. This is a, the number quote nine, guys. Um, I was drawn toward the apocalyptic view of climate change 20 years ago. I can see now that my heightened anxiety about climate change reflected an underlying anxiety and unhappiness in my own life that had little to do with climate change or the state of the natural environment. Uh Really, I, you know, I, I was struck that this feels like almost like a defining work for you. Is that is that what it feels like? Yeah, that's a very heavy sense. <laughs> I don't mean to throw that <laughs> at you here at the end of the interview. We could, get there. We could no, go end fine. on a smile. But. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that last chapter was very hard to write. And, um, you know, I'm making a, a criticism of what I think is an unhealthy psychology behind environmentalism. And at the end, I couldn't figure out how to do it because I didn't want to be guessing as to other people's motivations. And so I just talked about my my own experience. And, um, yeah, like I said, I think when I was really apocalyptic about climate change, it was due to some um, unhappiness that didn't have anything to do with the natural environment. And I'm not saying that's how it is for everybody, but that's how it is for me. And I hope that People, when they find themselves, you know, preaching the end of the world in 12 years, <laughs> they'll just give a consideration to whether maybe that what they're worried about maybe isn't the climate and maybe something else going on in their lives. Mm, really? I, I mean, it's an excellent book. It's a book you, you I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, Michael thank Schellenberger. You so much. Yeah, I really, really appreciate that. Thank you. Um, thank you for doing this. And thank you. It's a brave thing to do. I'm sure you're, 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 your life's going to be a little miserable here. I hope you recognize that here for the next <laughs> few months. I hope that does isn't the case. But it seems to be when people speak out. It's not always uh, as as uh, as welcomed as as I would hope it would. So please be strong, and we'd love to have you back on at another time uh, to go through even more of the book. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Thank you. It's uh, Michael Schellenberger. The book is Apocalypse Never: Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. Uh, as I said earlier, uh, when people step out and are brave like this, we need to support them. Go get this book. I can't recommend it highly enough. Michael, thanks for coming on the program. Back in a second. All right. Look, we just went through a, a quarantine. And was it fun? No, it was not fun. It was. Uh, and I don't even know. Are we even coming out of it? Seems like we're going to get everything banned once again. Um, intermittent fasting is a way to uh, people talk about losing weight. And if you need to lose weight, maybe you put on 19 pounds in the COVID-19 quarantine. You're not alone on that. Um, I think you might like this strategy, though. It's a little bit different. Um, I always feel like the normal approach to losing weight is, oh, you go out and just exercise three or four hours a day and you, and you just uh, cut off a few hundred calories every single meal of every single day and eat healthy and, and be unhappy and don't like to eat things that you like. That's not sustainable. I feel like I'd rather when I'm, in, when I'm into it, I'm into it. And so uh, it's, it's a big situation when it comes to setting rules and being able to follow them. Uh, intermittent fasting is, is easy, though, with fast blasts. It's a lot easier than trying to do it on your own, I can tell you that. They will walk you through every step of this so you understand how it works, uh, as well as uh, these give you these great smoothies, which the smoothies are awesome, and they fill you up, and it doesn't feel like you're, 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 you're suffering. I'll, I'll be honest with you. It makes it a lot easier. So I would definitely recommend going with fast blast, but it's an interesting thing to consider. Uh, I always tell you to do your own homework. I uh, urge you to learn up more about this at fastblast.com blaze. Get started today with, a, uh, with fast blast. Let them walk you through this process. Fastblast.com slash blaze. Get started today for a healthier and smaller you. It's fastblast.com slash blaze. Comedy genius uh, Carl Reiner is dead, 98 years old. Uh, people remember him for the Dick Van Dyke show. Although I will say, and this is something that actually happened to me today. I saw the news and I thought, oh, it's a guy behind the jerk Steve Martin movie. And then I said, no, don't say that out loud. 
because if people remember the jerk, there's no way it doesn't get canceled. We are totally screwed. I mean, it's a classic movie, has all sorts of offensive things in it. Um, and you got to believe it's going to get canceled now that people are remembering it again. And that's sad. I will say this, and this is legitimately true. There are several shows that I can think of that I really enjoy that have made edgy commentaries on things like race, being critical of racism and sexism and all sorts of other bad, nasty things. I hesitate to bring them up in any public context because even when they have the right intentions and even when what they did is completely fine and all of that, they still are getting canceled these days. I mean, cops got canceled because they feature people in the same job as somebody who did something wrong. I I have no idea what the rules are anymore, so I'm hiding all the names of my favorite shows from now on. But rest in peace, Carl Reiner, back in a second. How often do you find yourself mentally checking out at work? Um, Now, I know you're doing it doing this show all the time, but uh, do you do it at work as well? It's not good there. How about uh, that all too often afternoon crash uh, from that coffee just can't fix? Well, you need Dawn to Dusk. Dawn to Dusk is a physician formulated extended release energy supplement, which lasts up to 10 hours. It increases energy, improves your mood and stimulates your brain all with no jitters. Some of these things they make you feel weird. That's not the case with Dawn to Dusk. It's safe, effective and a lot less expensive than all those expensive drinks, especially if you're getting them at Starbucks, like $47 a drink. Right now, save 15% off a one month supply. Use my code Stu at Dawn to Dusk. Com. The code is Stu. Make sure to use the code Stu because that's how they know you like this stupid show. Dawn to Dusk. My, excuse me, it's my Dawn to Dusk.com. Code is Stu. Welcome, Jason Buttrell. He's head writer and researcher of the Glenn Beck program right here on Blaze TV. Jason, uh, thanks for stopping by. Um, Russia has been an interesting, uh, interesting sort of world over the past four years. We found out, of course, uh, Vladimir Putin single-handedly gave Donald Trump the election. We know that to be a fact. <laughs> uh, at, least, at least in the media, I seem to know that. Um, but it doesn't seem like Vladdy was, was, all, uh, was so friendly with the United States there for a while. We're getting reports now of a bounty system. I- is this true, do you think, and is it common? Okay, well, so first off, there's so many different things to talk about here. First off, it's being used, this story is being used to say that, you know, the Trump administration is going light on Russia again. Th- that's their angle on mm-hmm. this. Yes. It's like, oh, an investigation needs to be done. I saw John Bolton, which I think we might talk about here in a second. He was even saying that. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for I don't know how many times we have to say this. The Trump administration has not been light on, on Russia. No. They've been far more, uh, you know, active than Obama, the Obama administration was. Uh, they all say they want to seek a reset with Russia. Every single administration since forever has said that. I got news for you. It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. We're just never going to get along. But um, the fact that Russia might have been giving bounties to, you know, f- to, for the, to the Taliban to take out coalition forces does not would not surprise me whatsoever. Um, back in my day, right after 9-11, I was in Afghanistan. There was a bounty on, there was, I think it was a $100,000 bounty on U.S. soldiers back then. I think it was 25000 just for a uniform. Mm. Um, we knew it. I think some people might have talked about it. I don't ever remember the Bush administration publicly coming out and talking about right. it. Why? Because these things are, are dark. They happen all the time. And they're never spoken about. I will say, I would, if I was in the military, I would seriously consider selling my uniform for twenty five thousand yeah I mean, I mean i lost it again i boss. might have looked for a few pallets can, yeah. I, can you give me a pallet <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um but yeah these, these things are not spoken about um but they happen there's never a public 
you know, tit for tat and things like this, because this is, you know, kind of like an act of war. Uh, yeah, really? well, that, <laughs> it seems like an act of war. Um, I don't. I hope we're not doing things like that. I've never heard us being accused of it, though uh, other um, groups around the world are. But it reminded me sort of our, our of our cyber warfare stance, right? right. Like, we're obviously doing things in the cyber realms that we don't necessarily want to discuss publicly, uh, but clearly are going on. And that th- there's stuff like that that's going on all the time with the military. But right. it's usually not like uh, it was such a bloodthirsty sort of thing. Right. And for, for instance, uh, you know, we've talked about, I know Glenn has a lot about what was going on in Ukraine. Um, we know that the Obama administration wanted to fight the Ukrainians, but their public stance was we're only going to give non-lethal aid. Now, is that really what was going on? I, I tend to doubt it. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there was something we just don't know about. But anyway, the point is these things happen all the time. But I question this a lot. For, for instance, the New York Times, for their reasoning, said that the purpose that the GRU, that's their military intelligence in Russia. Former was, the, K, the KGB, basically, right? Um, so, no, these are actually different. It's a, right. there's, there's multiple intelligence agencies, <laughs> right. shady ones in Russia. Yes. Um, this one's just the military arm okay. of their intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, but they said their reasoning was because they wanted us to... Uh, sign this peace deal with the Taliban. So they're like, and when you try to do the mental gymnastics in this, it makes no sense because it would probably have the exact opposite effect. Yeah. You start killing us, we're going to go in deeper onto this. Like we all want to leave these areas, but you know, we get pissed off when, when they, when they come after our guys. That's the one thing that would make us not. It's the one thing that that makes us stay. Yeah. Right. But, um, but there's a, the president just tweeted out, uh, I think maybe two days ago, that said uh, that he just talked to the DNI, the current DNI, and he said that uh, he, the DNI confirmed that this was never in your presidential brief because it was based off of information that we couldn't corroborate. So that's a big distinction, and it kind of also, I mean, the, the Steele dossier should have never been briefed to the president, should not have been in the presidential's daily brief. Right. Because it was uncorroborated information. Yep. They did it anyway. This is another example of that. It's un, it's, as an, I was an intelligence analyst when I was uh, in the Marines, we would get information all the time that was uncorroborated. If it's uncorroborated, you can't nail it down. You do not brief that to the general. It's the same with the president. Right. You don't want to influence their actions on something that may or may not be true. Right. It could be just false information that Russia was throwing out there to try and influence decision making. Mm-hmm. It could have been. So that's basically where that was at right now. The big question now is why was it leaked? Why was it leaked right now? It seems fairly obvious. It seems like there's still... People that are in the intelligence apparatus, uh, it goes all the way through the State Department. I won't say the, uh, you know, that, okay, I'll just say it, deep state word. <laughs> yeah. um, but there are still people up there that do not like the administration, that want to do things to try and paint him in a different light. And in the case of this, it's the tired, same old thing that he's going light on Russia. Why did he not not do anything about that? Well, there's multiple reasons why he wouldn't. One, it's uncorroborated. You can't talk about it. Right. Two, it is happening. We can't come out with it publicly. We're responding to it. But to come out publicly would be it basically acknowledging that we're at war with Russia and Afghanistan. Right. Which we're not doing. We prefer to stay away from that. We got enough going on. I don't know. <laughs> right. um, let me switch gears a little bit to sort of to Bolton. Uh, the Bolton book has been out now for a week. Um, it is. Uh, I've been reading it. it. It's it's interesting. I think you'd like it because it goes really in depth on you know, the back and forth between before the Helsinki press conference or um, the back and forth between the pulling out of Syria and all these different uh, different things. 
Bolton's an interesting character because he's been, <laughs> generally speaking, admired by the right his entire career, at least as, much, as long as he's been in the public eye. He's obviously very small, smart, a smart guy. He's very well read. He, he knows these issues. He's been in the middle of all of them for 20 or 30 years. He goes into the uh, Trump administration, and from day one, it's not a good fit with the Trump administration because he, is, he doesn't align. I mean, Trump basically is an isolationist um, when it comes to this stuff. Exactly the opposite of what? Exactly the opposite of, 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 of Bolton. And so it was interesting to, to, to read it. I think like when it comes to Russia, one of the first things Bolton says in the book is that Trump was exonerated on Russia. Um, so he's pretty clear on that. Uh, he does advocate for a stronger um, uh, you know, treatment of Putin, but it also acknowledges the, the policy has been pretty difficult here. Like they've, they've done a lot against Russia. And for whatever reason, the media wants to focus on his personal words towards Putin rather than focusing on the policy. And that seems to just me to me be a, um, you know, a, uh, a side sort of way of just trying to find the one thing they can do to pick Trump apart on Russia rather than looking at the whole policy, um, you know, in general. Yeah. Um... <sighs> I, 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 I like that criticism of, you know, whatever Trump says he's going to do is never really what he ends up doing. Yeah. His foreign policy has been the perfect example of that. Like you, we saw it in North Korea mm -hmm. where he's talking about fire and fury and, you know, and I'm going to move in all these, you know, assets and you will pay for it, you know, yada, yada, yada. But then what he always does, and this is basically the Trump doctrine at this point, is talk big, threaten, threaten uh, with use of the military yeah. and then pull out. And then look for sanctions or look for some kind yeah. of something like that to, to, to uh, counter it. It's never the John Bolton type of foreign policy. You mentioned that John Bolton was pretty much accepted on the right. And that's fairly true. But I would put a uh, like a kind of a caveat, more of like the neocon portion of the, of the right. They loved uh, John Bolton. Mm -hmm. um, the more libertarian uh, leaning did not like John Bolton. But that, that's kind of why I liked his addition to the White House. Because pushes them in a different direction. And it's, mm -hmm. it's, it, it, it's a layer of unpredictability, it was, in the White House. Like, Trump would talk big. You knew that you had John Bolton there, which everyone assumed was guiding that big talk. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, while everyone's scared of, oh my gosh, what's Bolton going to do? He's going to invade. Trump administration, or President Trump himself, had ne never had an intention to. Yeah, no, and that, uh, that's true. I think um, you go through the book and you see that, that sort of thing repeated over and over again, where... Uh, Bolton, you know, it's like Bolton definitely is a is a is a, a confident guy. Let's let's put it that way. Uh, <laughs> he definitely thinks he's right about everything. And when you go through the, with the situation, you kind of realize that he, a lot of the things I think he is right on. Like he, he you know, him taking um, Islamic extremism seriously, him looking at the, you know, the situation in Syria. I think he was right on it. Um, but again, the president is the decision maker here. And I think Bolton eventually re recognizes that and figures, what's the point of me sitting here? Because we're obviously in, in major disagreement. Um, one thing I, I wanted to uh, look at from the dynamic of this, because I thought this was a pretty interesting observation, and you being in the military all these years might have a little more insight on it than I do, because I have none. Um, it, he's very critical of Mattis. Now he, first of all, despises Nikki Haley. <laughs> like, I think they might get in a fist fight next time they run into each other somewhere. Um, but he does not like Mattis either. And one of the things he talks about with Mattis is um, this concept that he's essentially made himself a five-star general, which was, you know, he's just, instead of actually being uh, Secretary of Defense, he's just become a general that tells four-star generals what to do. And 
there's this, there's many, many of examples of it in the book, but he kind of comes to this point where Mattis believes he's the right one. He's going to do whatever he has to do. He, he's constantly manipulating the press and slow playing um, in, in a sort of a long um, uh, bureaucracy, sort of taking people down these roads of bureaucracy that actually sidetrack what Trump's trying to do. Th- this is one of the reasons why it seems like you don't put military people in these roles, right? Because then he's so, and, and this is Bolton's case, neither side, the civilian side or the military side don't work well under this circumstance because they, they have different goals and they have different ways of looking at the world. Is that something that you can kind of see could be a problem when it comes to these levels? Well, I mean, I, I, see, what, I see his point. What I think is interesting is everything he's saying about Mattis is, was everything wrong with him in his position there? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. they both, I, I know General Mattis. I served under him uh, in Afghanistan. They both think that they're exactly right, mm-hmm. and they're going to try to convince everybody that they're right. So you can see why Bolton and Mattis did yeah. not get along there. It's like yeah. two roosters should not be in that hen house together like that. They're going to fight. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of, I, I loved the appointment of uh, General Mattis. I, do, I, was a big, I was a fan of it at the time as well. The thing was, is that he was a, so he's, he's a very, you know, traditionalist mm-hmm. when, when it comes to uh, military policy. And so he, I thought he was going to be a very grounding, you know, presence that was going to keep yes. things rolling in a certain direction. The thing is, is that now we're seeing that he was clashing with Trump because if Trump wanted to do something different, Mattis was having an pro- issue with it. Yeah. And now he's being very vocal about it. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, one of the things they keep coming back to is this sort of like idea that there was a the adults in the room. Right. Yeah. The adults in the room were the Mattises and the Kellys and all these guys who came in at the beginning and tried to control Trump. And Bolton is actually really critical of that, um, saying that basically they they caused a reaction in Trump after he sort of realize what was going on, which they were slow playing all that. They'd say, yes, yes, of course, we'll do that. And they wouldn't do it because they were the smart ones and Trump wasn't. It caused a reaction the other way with Trump, where he started acting more erratically because he didn't want those guys around. He didn't like that they were doing that to him. Um, and I think that that you can't run a government that way. You know, whether you like Trump or not, he's the president of the United States. He's 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 the you know, he's running the military. He's the guy. So get on board with what he's doing or you need to go somewhere else. Yeah, the, that's what, the system. Yeah, and I, I don't understand the way the Trump administration was built because they it was built off of this maverick, right? Yeah. That the, this guy that was going to upend certain institutions, do it the do things differently. Mm-hmm. Then he goes and hires a bunch of established people that are go, that's what their job was was to get him in line. Yeah, yeah. So I I love Mattis, but his job I guarantee you was to keep Trump in line, mm-hmm. to keep things rolling in the direction. Bolton wanted the same thing. Yeah. Basically, he he wanted things going in that. I would say neocon worldview of toe that line. And he's very honest about that. Yeah. You know, it's just a matter of like at some point, And I think you're right. Trump liked Bolton's reputation because it, it gave wet weight to his threats. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, but in the end, it just wasn't a working relationship that could that could really go on. There's so much more to talk about this. We'll do this again here uh, coming up here as a, as maybe if you could read the book and, and I'll continue to finish it. It's it's a it's an interesting it, it's been the, the media has used it as 100 percent Trump bashing, and that's all they're getting out of it. But there's a lot more there, and, and some of it's really interesting. Jason Buttrell, he's a writer, head writer and researcher uh, for the Glenn Beck program. Uh, thanks for coming on the uh, show. Also, don't forget to enjoy, of course, Jason, uh, who's on the show, News and White Matters all the time. 
And uh, on Glenn Beck, uh, the TV show, go to blazetv.com slash stew. Use the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show. And uh, it'll take 10 bucks off the cost. Back in a second. Your reviews on iTunes are the only thing that can save the world. This one comes in and says, I love this stupid show. It's great. Whatever. Five freaking stars. There, I did it. I know it won't stop his begging, but at least my conscience is clear. That's true. Uh, also, uh, I mean, I only listen to it every night before I go to bed, so it's great. Whatever. Cool. Five freaking stars. Love you guys. Thank you so much for taking the time to review on iTunes. We'll see you tomorrow.